You are now listening to the April 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and it's time to pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. Well, today on Walking Your Talk, we're talking about the key of commitment. We've talked a little bit about Uh, comradeship and how to be friends and how to make a friendship room and how to make room for each other and be friends. And now we're going to talk a little bit about commitment. And one of the things I think about in commitment is a man, uh, uh, Robertson McQuilkin, who uh, was the dean at Columbia Bible College. And he proposed to his wife on Valentine's Day in 1948, and they were married in August of that same year. They served God together. They raised six children and served uh, in a variety of posts, including 12 years as missionaries in Japan. But in 1968, they returned to the United States where Robertson was the president of Columbia Bible College and uh, Muriel taught at college and spoke at women's conferences. She appeared on television, and she was a featured radio host. And the first sign that their lives were about to change appeared in 1978 during a trip to Florida when they were with some friends, and Muriel loved to tell stories and punctuated them with her infectious laughter. But while they were driving, she began telling a story she had just finished a few minutes earlier. And Robertson said, honey, you just told that story. That's funny, Robertson thought. That has never happened before. And that started a downhill spiral for Muriel. She had early onset um, Alzheimer's. And she was hospitalized for tests in 1981. The next few years went by. Robertson watched helplessly as his fun, creative, loving partner slowly faded away. Muriel knew she was having problems, but she never understood that she had Alzheimer's. One thing about forgetting is that you forget that you forgot. (laughs) (laughs) So she never seemed to suffer too much with it. Muriel found it more and more difficult to express herself, and she stopped speaking in complete sentences, relying on phrases and words. And though she continued to recognize her husband and her children, she lived in Robertson's words in the happy oblivion to almost everything else. And the thing about this story is that Robertson McQuilkin made a decision in 1990 that the school that he was president of was asking for 100% of his commitment, and his wife needed, as her health was going downhill, and uh, he, she needed his commitment. And he wrote a letter to the Bible College. Recently, it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I am away from her. It's not just 
discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me and always goes out to search for me and when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. So his decision, he made a decision to, uh, 42 years ago, I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and the faculty that I'm a man of my word and the integrity has something to do with that factor, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all the years that I've cared for her. For the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt if I did that. And duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of wit, I used to relish so. Her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. This is a commitment that Robert McQuilkin made. And it's unbelievable, isn't it, honey? Mm-hmm. That's such a beautiful picture of what a marriage is all about. We, we take these vows in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, but all we want is the better. All, all we want is the health. We don't, uh, we, nobody plans to be married to somebody who is going to get old or crippled or senile or dependent in any way. We, you know, we marry young and we think uh, we'll just be young For the forever. rest of our lives, right. But we have the privilege of living next door to a couple who have also been married since she was 16 and he was 18. They have three grown children, uh, several grandchildren, and she has been ill for the entire time they've lived next door to us, which has been, I don't know, two and a half, three years, but they've had a whole life together before they lived next door to us. But All we have seen of them is how much Mark cares for Peggy. And uh, Peggy is a wonderful, resilient spirit. She wants to do things for herself, but her body is just uh, betraying her. And Mark just cares for her and cares for her because he is committed to her. He loves her just like Robert McQuilkin loved Muriel in the story you just read. Well, and I just want to read the editor's note in this article that was put out by Family Life Today uh, in the year 2000. And uh, it's adapted from an article that David Bowie wrote from Lifeway Books. And It says this, Muriel's last day on this earth was September 19, 2003. In a letter to friends, Robertson wrote, For 55 years, Muriel was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. So it's like ripping the ripping of my flesh and deeper, my very bones, Robertson says. But there is also profound gratitude. For 10 years, I've delighted in recalling happy memories and I still do. No regrets. 
I'm grateful. They've written a book called A Promise Kept, mm -hmm. and it's put out by Family Life Today. You know, the thing that occurs to me is that a commitment is I will, mm. I do. It's not I'll try, I'll do my best. And it is I, I am determined that this is what I am going to do, and nothing is going to deter me from that. Nothing is going to turn me away from that. It's a choice that we make to move forward in a, a relationship with another person, no matter what happens. And so our big idea here is there are no back doors in our relationship. And one of the things we committed to each other was to just say, honey, we're not going to joke or even talk about divorce when we are totally at odds with each other. And we are committed to each other. And we, there is no escape hatch here. And one of the destructive things that I find in people that are having conflict to the point where they can't talk to each other anymore and then they come in for counsel is they don't realize how they're tearing at each other and tearing the relationship down and looking in the back, uh, the rearview mirror at their life and bringing up all these things that are so hurtful and terrible and they start talking about, well, if you keep doing this, I'm out of here. And that is the beginning of the end of a relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that is so hard. Uh, it's hard on the, the one who is threatened mm -hmm. then to think that they can still rely on that other person being there for them. And you and I both come from families where our parents were married for more than 50 years. And we don't have a history of broken marriages in, in our families. So we've seen that commitment. We've seen parents who work, even though in my family, my, my father had emphysema, and he was ill, bedridden for the last few years of his life, and my mother was there for him, and he was there for her for 50 years prior to that. And it seems like that generation, the World War II generation, knew how to make a commitment and did their duty regardless of what they felt. And now we've swung so far in our culture to the other way, which is if it feels good, do it. That's been the mantra from the 60s. <laughs> and it's changed our whole culture and the way we live life and changed marriages forever. Well, I think about even trying to get friends to commit to whether or not they're going to come to a party or do something with us. There are a lot of people who just say, well... I'll, I'll pencil it in, you know, and if something better comes along, then I, you know, I, so I'll like do that So it's like your yes instead. be yes and your no be no. Yes, exactly. But that's hard sometimes. So biblical examples of commitment. Uh, we've recently been going through the book of Ruth and uh, Ruth and Naomi. Um, you can describe Ruth and Naomi, honey. Well, I love this story, this four-chapter book of the Bible where uh, 
an Israelite woman and her husband and two sons had to go into the land of Moab because there was famine in their in their land, and they uh, they lived there. And Moab was kind of enemies of Israel, but they they were living there. And the two sons married Moabite women whose names were. Uh, Orpa and Ruth, and then the sons both died, and the husband of Naomi died. And eventually, Naomi heard that there was uh, the famine was over back mm. in in the land that she had come from at, of Ephrathah, which is where Bethlehem is. And uh, so she said, "Well, I'm going to go back. You girls." Her daughters-in-law, you should just stay here with your families. And they're going, no, 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 we're going to go with you. And Ruth said, no, you know, if you stay here, you can marry young men, you can have a life. And they said, uh, no, we'll go with you. And finally, Orpah turned around and went back. And Ruth said, I am going with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Your Your people people will be be my people. people. Your God will be my God. She had seen something in Naomi where she committed herself to her and said, I I like what I see. I like this God, this faithful God. Even though you've gone through the same kind of awful pain that I've gone through, your God is faithful to you, and I want to go with you back to your land. And Ruth went with Naomi back to the land of Israel, back to Bethlehem. And eventually, in obedience to instruction that Naomi gave her, she ended up marrying a relative of the family whose name was Boaz. And they ended up having a son who ended up being the grandfather of David, the great king of Israel. And that happened because Ruth committed to following her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to the land of Israel. So God's commitment to us, of course, was he gave his life. Greater love has no man than this, John fifteen thirteen says. Then one lay down his life for his friends. So he died for us so we could have life, and he made a commitment. How much more should we make a commitment to one another? And you know what? It can't be done unless we're committed to him. I mean, I, in my own strength, am not going to be able to, day after day, be committed to you uh, unless God, by his spirit, gives me the power to be able to love you the way he loved me, which was unconditionally. And he gave his very life. And sometimes we say it's easier, you know, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, don't be conformed to this worm, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, you're to present yourself a living sacrifice. And somebody said, you know, that's uh, harder to be a living sacrifice than to just be killed and die (laughs) on the altar because it's so every day. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I think. I think that God has given us the ability to make vows and keep them. Mm. Now, maybe we don't have the strength to feel like we want to do everything that we've committed to, but 
God takes vows very seriously, and we see them from the very beginning of the Bible, that we take vows and we keep our vows. And in marriage, we make vows to each other, but ultimately, a lot of people break those vows. Mm-hmm. And that it, that wounds the heart of God. And that wounds us because God created us to be people who live in truth, who walk in truth, and who are people of our word. That we, if we make a vow, we are to commit ourselves to that vow and keep it. And ultimately, even if it's painful, even if we have to make great sacrifices, we will feel better about ourselves because we are doing what we are called to do when we keep our vows. Well, and God did that, set an example for us so that we would do the same. And even if we do break that vow, and even if we do uh, not keep our commitment, God says, even when your heart condemns you, I'm greater than your heart. And he says he is faithful to a thousand generations, to those who love him and keep his commands. And we have examples of people who didn't keep their commitments. King David uh, and Bathsheba and having an uh, illicit relationship with her and, and killing her husband. I mean, and yet God, at a point in time, David repented and turned around and said, Oh God, your hand was heavy upon me day and night. I couldn't even sleep. My strength was completely taken from me because I sinned against you. And God says, I am a God of grace and second, third, fourth, and tenth chances. But as Romans says, should I sin all the more that grace should abound? He's not saying, hey, test me out. You know, break your commitments all the time Mm -hmm. and see if my grace is sufficient. It is sufficient, but there are scars from broken commitments. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, it's easier, I think, for us who have seen an example of faithfulness, even with uh, parents who did not know the Lord, but they kept their commitments. And a lot harder for many of those who I talk to who have seen nothing but a broken chain of uh, relationships and commitments that were made and broken and, and excuses made instead of owning up to them and taking responsibility and actually saying, I was wrong here. Please forgive me. And, you know, next time we hope to talk a little bit about what is that process of forgiving each other? How do you build a friendship? You build a friendship but when you blow it with your friend. You learn to say, please forgive me. I, I didn't mean it or I meant that and that was wrong and I need your forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And we need to learn what it means to turn around from our sin and be able to come into the light and say, I, by God's grace, will keep the commitment that I've given to you. Well, one of the wonderful promises that we have from 1 John 1, 9 is that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to be able to do that for each other as well, that when we confess our sin to each other, when we confess our faults to each other, we need to be faithful to the commitment that we have 
with each other, to forgive each other, and to be able to move forward in our relationship with each other. So a couple of questions for you, the listener. Where is your commitment level with each other right now? On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being I am totally committed, 1 being I'm not very committed at all. Just give, uh, maybe write it down and then share it with each other. Take a few minutes and just evaluate where is your commitment level and then what positive actions can you take right now to be able to keep your commitment and make it real. Thanks for listening. This is Alan Heller and Polly signing off, and we'll see you next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is From Grief to Glory. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. This morning, what I think we're going to see is, as we look back in our Hopeful Exiles series in 1 Peter 6, 9, it's that Peter is going to show us that as we face these grief-inducing trials and tragedies of this life, we ought to, as believers, discover that they are actually resulting in a confident joy in a certain future. In other words, we are not questioning whether or not God really does have our futures In his hand, not only that he knows it, but he's actually bringing it to pass. That's what Peter tells us is the truth about the nature of trials in the hand of our God. Now, if you're just joining us, Peter's writing here to a group that's mostly Gentile Christians in this Roman area of Asia Minor. They are facing a variety of trials for their faith in Jesus, ranging from everything from daily experiences of social alienation to the occasional and sporadic political persecution that left them feeling like aliens and exiles in their own homes. They once were part of the people, but they they followed Christ, and now they felt like aliens in the homes that they had always known. And in verse 6, you'll notice this morning that it begins with this little phrase, in this you rejoice. Now, this little phrase, I believe, is important this morning. It's an important phrase because it is pointing back to verses 3 to 5. And you'll remember in verses 3 to 5 that we got this grand vision from Peter that he gives to these Christians, telling them that they feel like exiles because of the new birth, that they were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to a confident hope of a future home with God, who is guarding them through faith for the return of Jesus Christ. They should be excited and encouraged to know that the reason they feel like they aren't home is because they're not home yet. A home is coming. But here in this you rejoice actually transitions us as well. From those verses to verses 6 to 9 that we're looking at this morning. And this transition is somewhat startling. Because here what we find is, is that This reality in verses 6 to 9 really feels more normal for us. It's the kind of trials that we face every day. And I think that what Peter is trying to do is he's trying to answer an important question. If God really is keeping me by faith for the last day, like he said in verse 5, then why isn't he protecting me from the various griefs of this life today? Why is that? Well, we're going to see that this morning. And what we're going to find is, our, our big idea is this, if you're taking notes, a great thing to write down. It is that God mingles future joy with present griefs to expose a genuine faith ready to see Jesus face to face. That's how God is working through our trials in in these verses. Now first, we're going to notice that being kept by faith for the last day does not mean you will not suffer today. So let's go ahead and read our text and we'll then notice these things. So here's what 1 Peter 1, 6-9 says. It says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So let's jump into this text and, and see what it is that God has for us this morning. As we do that, why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Father, this morning as we come before you, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us afresh. Father, I'm sure there are many in this room right now who are experiencing various trials and griefs that need to hear a word from you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak new life and joy into us this morning by the power of your spirit. God, we ask that you do this for the glory of your name, and it's your name alone we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing, again, that we see here in verse 6 is that being kept by faith for the last day does not mean that you will not suffer today. And as we do that, I think that there are many Christians that with you grow weary on waiting for Jesus' return. The trials of this life only make that worse. But notice here how quickly Peter downshifts from their last day hope to the the trials of today or right now. Uh, Notice in verse 6 again. Verse 6, you remember he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, remember, Peter has just shown us The last day is glorious. But he says today is grievous, right? It's full of grief. Now, rejoicing and grieving together like this actually hits closer to home. It's not just the lexicon that gives us trouble, right? It's our experience. We know, all of us, what grief feels like. It's the human experience. But Peter's not just talking about trials in martyrdom either here. So we just need to, to wrap our mind around that. He's not just talking about some kind of sufferings and trials that are for special super-Christians not like you and me. He's actually talking about the kind of grief and trials that we're exposed to day by day. In fact, if you know life, then you know that trials come in all kinds of packages, and the Bible speaks of this. You know, I I can name a few just right now. I mean, one way that trials come is as a consequence of our sins and sinful desires. Anybody ever faced those trials? The Lord is doing a marvelous work here. You know the trial of of sin and and sinful desire, don't you? The the kind of thing that Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy 6, 9, where he is talking about the man that has given himself over to an an inordinate desire for money. That money becomes his God and leads him away from the true God. In fact, trials can become even more significant as we continue to choose sin, can't they? You've, You've probably noticed that. Like maybe you had a sin that... You thought you had control over, and then before you noticed, you found out that that sin actually seemed like it had an upper hand on you. That though you have victory in Christ, the Bible tells us that clearly in Romans 8, you felt like more of a captive to your sin. And so often we would rather bend God around our bent desires than for us to be faithful and seek his face to help us bend our desires around him. But not only are we finding ourselves in trials because of sin and sinful desires, we also find that trials can come from persecutions for seeking to follow Jesus, like the the fiery trials that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 4.12, or those faced by the apostles and the other Christians throughout Acts. Those can range from social alienation 
to political persecution. In fact, conflict with the gospel. Maybe over issues like human identity and sexuality. And you felt that low-grade social alienation and pressure that might heat up. And then there are also, thirdly, trials that simply come as a result of living in a fallen world. I mean, our world is obviously broken by the fall, and our bodies are wasting away with MS, cancer, migraines, age, etc. And even hurricanes and tsunamis are wiping out islands and taking countless lives. There is suffering all around us that is actually just part of being in a world. And many experience, and my experience is, that the various trials... Catch this, that we face day by day. Have you noticed that they don't tend to make appointments? And they don't tend to show up on time when you're ready? And I also find that the kinds of various trials that come after me are pack animals. They don't come by themselves. They usually come in at least threes. Have you noticed that? It's like something hits and then you're like, how am I going to catch up? And then something hits again before you've like caught up. And then you get hit again and you're like, I almost feel like somebody's trying to tell me something. But you'll notice three things briefly about this verse, verse 6, and what it says about our trials. First, notice that little phrase, for a little while. Now, you might be thinking that Peter must not be talking about my trials because they've been here for a long while, right? Like, these are not the little while kind of struggles that he's talking about. And that might be true from this side of eternity. This side of eternity, they seem very long. But afflictions become light and momentary. Catch me. They become light and momentary from another perspective. From the perspective of the eternal weight of glory that awaits us at the return of Jesus. If our perspective is shifted to where Christ is, then what happens is our scales begin to become recalibrated So that the sufferings of this life no longer weigh the same amount that they would apart from the weight of glory that awaits us. Not only that, second, notice that he says that trials are necessary. Now you might not have seen this, but you notice that it says if necessary, which is declaration that it is necessary. God himself who is at work in their lives. Now we'll talk about that in a minute. For now, notice third, that Christians with genuine faith will be grieved by all kinds of trials. You know, one thing I think is really important for us as believers is to know that what we are promised and know what we are not. It's also to have realistic expectations of what it looks like to be a believer. And maybe this morning uh, you are surprised to know that becoming a believer actually does not promise that you will not face difficulties and trials in this life. In fact, sometimes those who follow Jesus experience greater persecution. In other words, these grievous trials that have come they are due to sin persecution or the fall but they don't mean that God is not guarding you by faith that is what I think Peter wants us to see now I just want to ask you a question this morning what does your heart tend to do whenever you face persecutions or hard things do you begin to question whether or not God loves you because you can't imagine him letting you go through experience x if he loves you Or do you begin to question whether or not God is in control? Because you can't imagine an all-powerful and all-good God allowing you to experience why if he really was sovereign as he says. Well, here's why I think this is important when we start to ask these questions. By way of illustration, I don't know if y'all have seen some of these facial editing uh, deals that you can use, these apps you can use on your phone that actually help you make your Instagram and Facebook pictures look better. 
I obviously don't use those, uh, but some people do. And when they do, you know, they use them to really give the best version of themselves, the version that they want people to see. Now, sometimes people use, I believe, this kind of idea with God, right? They use their sort of theological snapseed sort of editor, and they focus on God, and they begin to try to fix those things that they see as blemishes, things that actually deny the goodness and the greatness and the power of God. They hide the things that they don't know how to explain, and in doing so, they reimagine a God that is not the God of the Bible. I think that in our trials, we need to be especially careful that we are not reimagining God as someone who he is not and start to say things about God that are clearly not true. It means that God is in control of our pain and suffering, and that he has in mind a beneficial purpose for it. There is no such thing as as pain without a purpose for the child of God. In other words, we will experience pain, but here's this point, there's a purpose to that pain. It's not meaningless and purposeless as some people might believe. In fact, I wonder if Peter influenced Because notice here in verse 7 that Peter understands trials as tests that reveal the true nature of something. So second, notice that trials are God's test to reveal genuine faith, like that faith that we read about in verse 5 that is ready to see Jesus face to face. Now you'll notice here that verse 7 begins with, so that. Now that so that expresses the purpose of, of those grievous trials that he spoke about in verse 6. So look at what Peter says here. He says, So that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says trials are tests that show the genuineness of our faith. See, Peter is comparing the way that fire test the genuineness of gold with the way that trials test the genuineness of your faith. Whether or not it is a God-born faith that is guarding us or it is something else. Now, I know that every analogy breaks down and Peter actually is highlighting a couple of ways that he expects this analogy to play out. First, you'll notice that he highlights the reality that gold is valuable, precious, but faith is more valuable. Of course, I think this is in the eyes of God and God's people. But this is because, second, gold is part of this perishable world that is passing away, but faith leads to an imperishable eternal life. There's a third implicit point of comparison here between the gold and faith, which we see picked up elsewhere, which is that the fires of trials actually purify our faith in the same way that fire purifies gold. Now that's why we have the fiery trials that continue to come at us, purifying us, right? From one degree of glory to the next, trials are shaping us more into the image of Christ. That's a third reason that we have trials. We're trying to get to that 24 karat status of of Jesus, right? That only happens when he returns, when we fully look like him. So trials purify and prove those who have genuine faith that promises an imperishable future. Now just take note, rightly assessing the authenticity of gold could be a matter of life and death. It's important historically to make sure that you have real gold and that you haven't mistaken it for something that is not. Trading what is valuable for what is worthless could leave you in ruin. And many have done this with fool's gold, right? You've all seen fool's gold that looks so much like gold. But don't miss what Peter's doing here. 
He's actually flipping the logic of suffering on its head for believers. Instead of interpreting trials as an enemy of faith or some kind of evidence that God is absent, Peter sees them as an instrument of God. God is using these sufferings to bring about his purposes. Now let me just ask you this. Who's sending these trials according to our text? God is. Not only that, did you see that it's the tested genuineness that means authentic faith will be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus? He's speaking about the future return of Jesus Christ. And he's saying as these afflictions heat up, it is showing that this is the kind of authentic faith that is ready for the return of Christ. They're ready to see Jesus face to face. Now there are two critical realities about the nature of the sufferings of this life for Christians here in this verse. A couple things that we just don't need to miss as we are going through this. And the first is this. God sees and remembers every one of our griefs. See, every suffering will result in praise and glory and honor when you see Jesus face to face. Every one. I mean, what a promise, right? That you know that every suffering that you have faced, that you have not understood, one thing that you can trust is that it has a transitory weight that will be translated in heaven when you come before Christ that will translate from suffering and grief into glory and honor and praise. Now, I think that this is at least speaking of the nature of reward that comes to the believer who has been faithful through trials and tribulations. But it then redounds to the glory of Christ and to God, the power of the Spirit. I mean, what an amazing promise. He keeps the tears of the wounded saint in his bottle. Now, you might be wondering, where did he get that from? Well, I think he got it from Psalm, Psalms 56, verse 8, where David says, You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? In other words, the psalmist David is being hunted down, being challenged for his faith. His friends, his family have turned on him. And in that moment, he says, God, I I know your character, and I know that what this means is that I don't have one tear that goes unnoticed by you, and that you are keeping them in your bottle, that God would not forget one of them. Just catch the beauty of that. They believed that every tear in that bottle was a promise, a promise that God was not only going to comfort and satisfy those those sorrows that were in their hearts and that had come out through tears, but that he was actually going to actually translate those into spiritual gold, that they would resound to the praise and the honor and the glory of God at the return of Jesus Christ. And what a hopeful image. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to know that God promises us that there is no suffering that escapes his attention. As he guards us, he watches us. And he's not just watching us to keep us safe. He's watching us with the intended end of the glorification of us and him forever at the end of days. Our future is incredibly bright. And our sufferings actually will translate into something of value in the future according to God's word. See, there's an escalation that comes in the face of Christ. Faithful sufferings aren't merely comforted, they're rewarded and redound to God's glory. But there's a second thing I think that's really important here as well, and that's this. It's that we are not promised that we will understand the immediate reason for the sufferings of this life. We're not promised that we'll understand the immediate reasons for why our children die, 
why our marriages break down, why, why sin seems to have an upper hand in a way that we don't want it to. We're not always given a reason for why we struggle lifelong with depression. We're not always given those answers this side of Jesus returning. We, we just are promised here not that there's an answer that we'll find some silver lining in the moment, but that in the end there is a promise that all things work together for our good and for our glory and the glory of God. Not a God that is finite like us that we can always understand, but a God that we can trust at the words that he has said. See, our sufferings reveal that we are not in control, God is. Or they show that our faith is not truly genuine. Do we have true faith or do we have fool's faith? I think that's what First Peter's asking us. But there's a third thing that we see here in verses 8 to 9, and that's this. Genuine faith already looks like the future. You'll notice in verses 8 to 9, they describe the already not yet reality that is revealed in the response of genuine faith to trials. There's an already not yet kind of response that we see here. It already looks like heaven, even though heaven's not fully here yet. See, they will see Jesus in the future, but they have not seen him yet. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says this, verses 8 to 9, here's what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I know that you've probably heard the phrase, seeing is believing. Well, Peter says the exact opposite is happening here. You know, for many of these Christians, we know that though Peter actually saw Jesus face to face, most if not all of them that he writes to have not. And you can hear Peter's amazement as he writes this. They have not seen Jesus with their eyes. They haven't seen him, but they love him from their heart. And they do not see him now, but they believe in him. See, they possess a faith in and a love for Jesus that's not according to physical sight, but to spiritualize. Now, you'll remember that Peter's not talking about an ivory tower kind of joy that's sort of disconnected from the multifaceted sorrow this world slings at you. He understood those. He experienced those. Now, he's describing a kind of joy that is alien as they are. A joy that is described as inexpressible and filled with glory. It is inexpressible in that there are no earthly words to describe the kind of joy that they are experiencing because it is not an earthly kind of joy. But it is also filled with glory. Now, this glory is actually, I believe, connected back up to something that happens before it where he speaks of the glory that is going to come in verse 5 at the return of Jesus Christ, or rather verse 7 when Jesus shows up. See, the joy that comes to the Christian is coming from Christ who is in heaven already. Blessing them from the treasury laid up for them and the not yet reality that awaits. They're already experiencing a taste of the joy that they long for in their griefs. This is not a normal kind of this worldly joy. In fact, I think that last phrase, verse 9, even strengthens this idea of Rejoicing and taking joy even in this moment. I take that participle. You notice it says obtaining or receiving as really providing the reason for why they experience joy amid suffering. In other words, the way that I take this is the ground of why they are able to take joy in verse 9. So I would actually translate verse 9 as something like this. 
You are experiencing this joy and this love, this otherworldly kind of experience because you are already obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are experiencing these things because you have genuine faith. So I would translate this something uh, like that. And Peter's saying that true Christians, not Navy SEAL-style Christians, actually, actual Christians are characterized by faith, hope, and love amidst trials. That is something that defines and characterizes Christians. See, bitter trials produce sweet fruit of the Spirit and the lives of believers. Not microaggressions, anger, and bitterness, but faith, hope, and love. And as Tom Schreiner observes in his commentary, the love and joy of believers is rooted in the hope of eschatological salvation. So the future is visiting the present. But the reality is, is that we really do need to estimate rightly the weight of glory and joy that awaits us when Christ shows up. And maybe this morning, you just need to recalibrate the way that you assess the value of that. Has the return of Jesus really begun to to reshape and recast the way that you view this world and this life? Does it interpret and translate the griefs of this life into something that's meaningful or something that just doesn't make sense? Not only that, I believe the more that God matures us through trials, the more that we will sense the joy of this world cannot compare with the joy that awaits us, and the more that we will long to see Jesus face to face. See, Peter doesn't command us to rejoice here simply. Here, he simply says, this is what genuine faith looks like. He's not commanding joy. He's saying this is part of what it looks like to be a true believer. But when I read this, I have to ask some honest questions because I'm a real guy. Questions like, what do we do if we're not joyful amidst our trials and our griefs? Like, can a Christian really be sorrowful and struggle to have this kind of joy? My short answer is yes. Christians can suffer. They can grieve. And they can sometimes feel like grief is winning over the joy. In fact, the Bible, I believe, calls us elsewhere to fight for joy. And we are commanded elsewhere to, to take joy and to rejoice all over the Bible. So I think we need a few observations about the nature of joy just to make sure that we don't leave here feeling like we are utter failures in the joy department and maybe not Christians. So here we go. A few things just to to leave with as we go. First is this. We are not saved by joy but to joy. An important distinction. I want you all to make sure you understand that. Here's what I mean. God does not love us because we were joyful enough. God's love for us right now is not because we've shown enough joy to satisfy him so that he continues to love us. That's not what the gospel says. What he's saying is, is I don't know why I suffer like this and why a good God lets me do it, but here's what I do know. There is an explanation. And I will find it when I, I, I reach the heavenly gates and I see Christ face to face. But until then, I have no promises that I'll understand why the Lord has allowed this grievous thing to weigh on my soul. See, we might understand why joy seems so evasive to some, even to us in seasons. But in those moments, we must trust and hope in God. But second, I think that in this story, we we see something else, something that we see throughout the pages of the Bible. We need friends to help us seek our joy. Friends like John Newton. Every William Cowper needs a John Newton. And I'm guessing every John Newton needs a William Cowper, right? Right? Somebody that brings the gravity of this world, but also cannot take their eyes off the return of Christ. Their friendship was what helped William Cowper through so many dark days. 
And I would say that we all need that same kind of relationship. And God gives those kinds of relations to us, mostly in the context of the local church. Where God has encouraged us to stir up one another towards love and good works and joy by gazing on the glory of God. Now, here's what I would say. If you want to fight for your joy and you're serious about it, then this time that we have together every week to hear the word preached and to sing together and to pray together and to hear God's word together and fellowship together, that ought to be absolutely significant and important and critical in our lives. And I think that when we treat church as something that's not that important, we believe that we are kind of able to live this life on our own, that we're not really needy for help to be joyful in Christ or to obey him, that we kind of can live autonomously and we don't need to live according to God's plan for us by living in a family together. That's not me. I tend to not be joyful when left to myself, and I need others to lift me up and to encourage me. I need a body of Christ to stifle me or to um, stir me up towards love and good works. And I think all of us would be less lonely if we sought to increase the joy of those around us. In other words, have you ever thought about like when you do come to stir one another up, church on Sunday mornings? Like, what is it that you're seeking to do? Like, what's your mission when you show up on Sunday? Are you showing up to be a vacuous hole that absorbs all the joy for yourself? Sometimes I do that. Are you showing up because you actually want to be an instrument used to enhance the joy of those around you? Just think about it. This morning, like what's your purpose for being here? Is God using you and are you wanting to be used? And do you realize that God wants to use you to stir those up around you towards joy in the Lord? Okay, next step. Then what does that look like? What do you do to make that happen? Do you actually talk to another person? Or do you say, well, if they didn't talk to me, then, well, they failed. Jesus failed. Or is it, no, I failed because God has created me for something more. He's made me to stir up other saints toward the glory of God. And if I didn't do that today, then I've done less than what God's called me to. And I want more. Or what about third? Killing sin in our lives. Now, you've heard of people talk about people who are a killjoy. You know what's a killjoy? Like Satan and sin. Those are killjoys. Sin and sorrow go together in a way that is not an oxymoron. Sin and sorrow are synonymous. If you are a sinner, you are sorrowful. And if you're not sorrowful now, you will be more than you know. In the same way, holiness goes together with happiness. If we're looking to be a happy, live a happy life, then we need to live a holy life, trusting that God really did tell us how to live in a way that is good for us and glorifying for him. So we need to be about the business of killing sin. As John Owen says, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But fourth, we are commanded to rejoice. So we need to repent. We need to repent if our lives are not characterized by joy. And there are probably many of us today who need to repent of this. And I want to walk softly here because I know that some of you have tender consciences. Some of you are broken. Some of you are going through extreme suffering. And in that moment, you know, it's not like necessarily the best time or the way that you want somebody to come in and say, you know what, this is a great time to repent of not being joyful like God calls you to. But I think for individually, for us, we do need to be reminded that just as any other sin, we are called to to rejoice in the Lord always. And that's written by Paul from a prison cell. And so we need to recognize that God created us for more than grief. This doesn't mean that it is sinful to be sorrowful, but that we don't grieve as those who have no hope, even over death. See, grief will not rob God's children of their future. But God sends grief to kill the idols of our hearts and to increase our joy in Jesus. Grief reminds us, brothers and sisters, that we are aliens of this world, but citizens of heaven. So don't get too comfortable. 
Finally, fifth, not only that, the joy we need is a gift that comes only from God. In other words, the purpose of this message isn't for you guys to go home and, you know, get your Jordans out and lace them up real tight and say, I've got this. I can be more joyful. I can jump higher because I have the right shoes. Now, the message of the Bible, the message of the New Testament is that the joy that we are called to have is a gift that only comes from God. In fact, Galatians 5.22 tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit coming from Christ. Did you catch that? You can't dig down deep in yourself, of yourself, and find the joy that the Bible calls you to. Now, the only place that you can find the joy that you are called to have is in Christ. Now, here's what that practically means. If I want joy this morning, what I really ultimately need to do is to seek God on his own terms for that joy. I might be looking all kinds of other places for joy, right? All kinds of wrong places for joy. I don't need to go through those. We know where those are. But there's one right place to seek joy And that is in the face of Jesus Christ. So what do we do if we need joy? We need to pray. We need to beg God that he would give us the joy that we need. And that doesn't mean that we might need to pray for just a week or a month. We might have to pray for a whole lifetime like William Cowper, who was completely dependent on God, knowing that he alone could give him the joy that was so evasive to him. For some of us, we know that we need to look at the word of God more because we're not We need to see God in all of his glorious splendor so that we can take joy in him. Others of us need to encourage one another and be encouraged, but we need to seek God's means for the joy that only he can provide. That means we need to listen to God's voice in the Bible and to ask for joy in prayer. Let's pray together.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. Today's first scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Today's second scripture reading is from John chapter 15, verses 4 through 11. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Today, let's praise God for inviting us to abide and remain in Him so we may be filled with the knowledge of His will and bear abundant fruit in every good work for His glory. Heavenly Father, we praise you for blessing us to be your holy believers who have been united to Jesus as beloved followers of the Messiah. God, release upon our lives the riches of your kind favor and heavenly peace so we may live devoted lives of faith and obedience to you. Lord, our hearts overflow with thanksgiving to you. Bless our faith and love to arise within us as we access all the treasures of our inheritance stored up in the heavenly realm. Thank you for the revelation of the true gospel of our glorious hope. We believe your word of truth with all of our hearts. This is the wonderful message that is being spread everywhere powerfully changing hearts throughout the earth, just like it has changed our hearts. Every believer of this good news bears the fruit of eternal life as they experience the reality of your abundant grace. Lord, fill us with a perfect knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we will walk in the ways of true righteousness, pleasing you in every good thing we do. Then we will become fruit-bearing branches, yielding to your life and maturing in the rich experience of knowing you in your fullness, and we will be energized with all your explosive power from the realm of your magnificent glory. Father, fill us with your abounding grace to live by the impulses of the Holy Spirit and produce abundant fruit by your Spirit within us in all its varied expressions of your divine love, joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, 
faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. Father, we desire to abide and remain in you, for it is the very source of our lives. As we live our lives intimately joined to yours, fruitfulness will stream from within us. We long to live our lives bearing abundant fruit to demonstrate that we are your true disciples who glorify your powerful name. Jesus, you have shown us Father's unconditional love through your word. Please teach us how to continually live nourished and empowered by your love and the revelation of your truth. Jesus, you are the divine portrait, the true likeness of the invisible God, and the firstborn heir of all creation. Every seat of power, realm of government, principality, and authority, it all exists through you and for your purpose. You existed before anything was made, and now everything finds completion in you. You are the head of the church. You are the most exalted one, holding first place in everything. Jesus, we give you all the honor, praise, and glory forever for all you have done for us. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.